Good morning. The reading is from Exodus 30, it's all of 32, and it's on the screen and in your leaflet. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and, and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bound, bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O oh Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory, it's not the sound of defeat, it is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, 
His anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they'd made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp, from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with the plague of what, for what they, of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Well, thank you, Sue. What a sad day in the history of Israel, and what a shocking story. I wonder. What shocks you more, the idolatry or the killing of the 3,000? I wonder. Well, maybe you're thinking it might have been better to stay at home because this is actually a story you'd rather not hear and uh, one you'd rather skip over. Well, if that's the case, well done for coming because the question raised by the golden calf is right on point. Will we choose to worship the God who is real who will make us uncomfortable and will challenge us, or 
will we choose to worship a more palatable, a more comfortable version of God, a God of our own design, who in the end isn't holy, will not challenge us, won't make us think, and in the end won't be able to respond to us at all. We need to pray. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, the Holy Lord, today, as you hold up a mirror to ourselves and a mirror to yourself, help us to see you and ourselves as we really are so that we can better understand Jesus Christ as our wonderful, effective, magnificent mediator that he is. Amen. Well, please keep your Bibles open so that will be really important that you can see where we're going. Um, the, there is an outline and I'll spend disproportionately more time in the first points than the later ones, so don't panic. All right, the whole episode starts with Israel giving up on the God who is real in preference for something of their own design. Verse one, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now, just in case we're gonna think we'd never do that, these are primitive pagan people, we're too enlightened, we're too sophisticated for this, just remember where this story fits. Exodus, the story of Exodus is all about the glory of God and God redeeming his people. God bringing them to himself around his mountain so that they may enter into his glory, so that God can dwell with them and they can be their God. Oh, sorry, and, and be their God. This is a rehearsal of what God invites us into through Jesus Christ. Which means these are not pagan people. They have been redeemed by God. They have seen the power of God's outstretched arm. They've been baptized in the Red Sea. God has brought them to himself. They have heard God's voice. They have seen God's glory. And this chapter is our chapter because the worship of the golden calf is what we as believers do. We all do it. What do I mean? This is one of the most basic of temptations that we are prone to all the time to make God in our own image and then to dress it up as worship. This chapter shines a light on this, our most basic of human tendencies which remains the tendency of all Christian people to worship our own idea regarding God and then to resist the God who is. This is the sin that is under every sin. First commandment, you shall have no other gods but me. Second commandment, do not make an idol. If you think that this is untrue, you'd never do it, just listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 10 which says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things, just as they did. Exodus 32 is about our hearts, it's about our desires, because idolatry is all about what we set our hearts upon, who we entrust ourselves to for our security, what we bow down to and worship. Now there are the usual things of money and sex and power, but we, we know that an idol can be anything that is good, that we give our hearts to so that we cannot live without this thing anymore. Why did the Israelites choose to worship a cow? That wouldn't be our first uh, preference. Of course, yes, some Egyptians, some Canaanite gods were cow-shaped, 
But the external shape is not the issue and we shouldn't get bogged down there. The Israelites' idolatry came from their hearts. It said God could rescue the Israelites out of Egypt, but it was another thing for God to take Egypt out of their hearts. John Calvin said our hearts are perpetual factories of idols. And what makes this incident of idolatry even more astounding is the timing of it. Right when it occurs, God has chosen this whole nation to be his own. You only have I chosen of all the peoples of the earth. He hasn't done it for anyone else. And he set out the terms of the covenant, which they've all agreed to, and he's just entered into this formal covenant relationship with Israel as a nation, ratified with blood. He has eaten with them, something akin to a wedding banquet, and right at the moment that he's laying out before Moses all his wonderful and beautiful and glorious plans, to dwell with them in his glory through the tabernacle. Right at that same time that God is laying this out on top of the mountain, it's at that moment the Israelites are playing the whore at the bottom of the mountain. They ditch their God for a God of their own design and then they have the audacity to legitimize it as worship. It would be like if you had just got married and the next morning, the day after the wedding, just as you're about to surprise your spouse with the, the blueprint of the, you know, the house plans which you're about to build, you come back into the bedroom and they're in bed with someone else and then they say to you, this person is the one I'm really married to. It's absolutely staggering. In Israel's case, I mean, they're there, they can see God's glory on top of the mountain. He's the God who is real. Every day they get up, there is manna on the ground. He's providing for them their daily bread. This is the God whom they need. But it makes no difference. They, they swap the God who is real, the God they need for a God who isn't real. Now, this shines a spotlight on our hearts. It's very, very important. There is something desperately stubborn and irrational and wicked in the human heart that we do this. While God is busy making provision for the Israelites and for us, we keep making idols. While God is preparing for us something beyond our imagination, we worship things that are limited by our imagination. And as he lays out his plans for his glory to dwell with us, we exchange his glory for something unheavenly and we shape it how we want it to be. We swap the real God who is visible for one that is, sorry, that's invisible for one that's visible. We swap the personal for an impersonal God, and we give it our hearts. It's because this is our tendency, and it's so natural, so ingrained, it's because of this innate tendency toward idolatry, this is why we need a mediator. And this chapter teaches us three things. First of all, we need a better mediator than Aaron. Secondly, we need a more effective mediator than Moses. Thirdly, we need Jesus Christ, our mediator. Firstly, we need a better mediator than Aaron. Aaron is Moses' elder brother. He's left, left in charge over Israel, chapter 24, when Moses goes up on the mountain. So he's the spiritual leader, and he's the man to be high priest. In fact, in the seven chapters that Mark covered um, most recently, uh, which lay out the tabernacle plans on the mountain, the, Aaron's name is mentioned in those chapters 39 times. God has a big plan for Aaron. And when he eventually dies, all of Israel mourns for him for a month. 
So he's a hugely significant figure. Now, given his responsibility as the spiritual leader of the people, what would you expect Aaron to say when they come to him in verse one and they say, make us gods who will go before us? I mean, wouldn't you expect him to say, you've gotta be kidding. That would be to blatantly and openly defy the first, com- first and second commandments. Wouldn't we expect him to say, you cannot be serious. I mean, you were with me when we, we saw God's glory, when we heard God's voice and trembled. You were with me when we told God we will obey everything that God commands us to do. We told him once, twice, three times, chapters 19, 23, 24. Wouldn't we expect him to say, we must not do this. We're all sealed with the blood of the covenant. We entered into relationship with the God who is living and real. And I was one of the lucky ones who got to go up the mountain and eat and drink with God and I saw his glory. We must not do such a thing. Wouldn't you expect him to say that? And yet instead, he does what every Christian leader has done at some point or other and he chooses the favor of the people over the glory of God. In verse two, Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and daughters are wearing, bring them to me. Verse four, he took what they handed him, made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then after the people say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, Aaron sanctifies the whole thing. Verse six, by building an altar in front of the calf and announcing tomorrow there's gonna be a festival to the Lord. This is a stunning failure in leadership. At this point, Aaron becomes the patron saint of pragmatism. He compromises the clear command of God and gives in to what's popular rather than what is right because his fear of the people is greater than his fear of the Lord or his regard for the glory of the Lord. And he develops this kind of sleazy scheme to cover his tracks. He baptizes what he's doing in religious jargon combines their idolatry with this, overlays it with this veneer of liturgy. He rewrites the creed. We believe in one Lord and one cow who brought you up out of Egypt. He sanctifies it by announcing a religious festival. That's how false religion works, isn't it? It's always deceptive because it has the appearance of spirituality and truth and validity and, and overlays it with a veneer of worship. And today, of course, you can go to all sorts of churches right across the spectrum which say they worship God, but the reality is there's very little desire to try and listen to God, to find out what God wants, and there's even less desire to follow the God that is real, and there's a lot of desire to follow a God of our own making. And we have to be careful that we don't do it. You know, the tragedy is we won't know that we're doing it until we actually open God's word and work through it together. So we need to pray for ourselves. My natural drift will be to prefer your opinion to God's, and that'll be your natural drift too. So we have to be careful. And every spiritual compromise we make robs us of spiritual power because we make gods who are convenient who don't make demands of us. The cow is a brilliant picture of all idols because the cow lets us do what we want. It never speaks, it never judges us, never calls us to account, but like every idol, it's completely useless to respond to us or to save us. You know, Aaron doesn't pray when he gets this request. He doesn't 
get the 70 elders together to seek God's face, he gives into popular request and the high priest of Israel now allows the people to be sovereign instead of God and his glory. And you can hear the shock and exasperation when Moses confronts Aaron in verse 21. He says, what did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? What did they threaten you with? Did they take your grandkids and hold them over the fire? I mean, what did they do? And at this point, Aaron, you see, he should have fessed up, but he did the opposite. And if ever you've wanted to learn technique to deny all, all responsibility for your actions, Aaron is a very good teacher at this point. Because first in verse 22, first of all he says, Moses, don't be angry about this. In other words, back off, don't be upset. Just breathe deeply, relax. The problem is not me, it's not us, it's you. You need to loosen up. You need to make not, not make such a big deal about sin. Then verse 23, he blames the people. This has all the marks of Adam's blame shifting in the Garden of Eden. This tactic is as old as sin itself. Um, when Adam says to the Lord, uh, the woman whom you put here, she made me do it. It's her fault and your fault. Well, Aaron does the same. You know how these people are prone to evil. They said to me, make us gods who go before us. And then as for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. It's God's fault for keeping him so long up on the mountain. Lastly, this is precious. Um, the word for this is spin. He says in verse 24, it's a really, really f funny verse, really. He says, so I, I told them, you know, whoever's got any gold jewelry, just take it off. And, and they gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire. <laughs> out came this calf. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, it's laughable, except it's not, because it's so serious. The people are still running rampant. They're completely out of control. They are playing without any clothes on, you can just imagine. They are a complete laughingstock to their enemies. And so now we come to this deeply sobering uh, section from verse 26, where Moses stands at the entrance to the camp, and he says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Now this is a request made of all the people, but only the Israelites respond, meaning that everyone else, the, sorry? Levites. Yeah, the Levites, sorry. Everyone else, the, um, their sin is now entrenched, all right? Their apostasy is entrenched. So everyone else chooses not to be on the Lord's side. And then verse 27, Moses says to the Levites, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother, friend, and neighbor. It's not Moses' idea, it's God's. And then verse 28, the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Oh, this, it, this is deeply shocking, isn't it? Now, doesn't this just prove that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and we, you know, lucky for us, we've got Jesus and the love of Jesus? Isn't this just an embarrassing moment in Scripture, best to quickly move on over and pretend it isn't there? A few quick comments. Number one, if we're thinking God here is guilty of religious cleansing and genocide, this is to be completely superficial and misleading. 
This is the first time in, the his, in history that God has given the execution of judgment into the hands of his people. Up until this point, the Lord God himself has been the one who directly brings judgment. He did it in the flood, he did it in the plagues, he did it in the Red Sea. But for a limited time in God's economy, he places the execution of his judgment into the hands, certain hands of his people, which a prerogative which when Jesus comes gets completely withdrawn. Thank, thank God for that. So it's limited. The surprise, secondly, the surprise in this passage is not how many people were killed, but how few people were killed. Because back in Exodus 22 verse 20, this is a condition of the covenant, the people knew it, they were told, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. And they agreed to this. They all said, yep, we're gonna do that. Because the punishment of this sin is death, what's surprising, therefore, is how few of them died, an incredibly small fraction. I mean, 3,000 is a lot, that's, let's not minimize that, but of two to three million people, when most of them should have died, it's an incredibly small amount. Now, added to that, as we've heard, Moses gave every single person a chance to repent, and if every person had crossed over to Moses, no one would have perished. And the fact that such a small percentage of those who should have died did die shows that God is actually extending his grace and mercy and compassion at this point. Meaning, thirdly, this episode is probably best thought of as a necessary moment of discipline in the early life of God's people. Something akin in the New Testament to the judgment that fell on Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five in the life of the early church. And then finally, and this is the most important. See, our problem with this is much more basic. It's no accident that this account comes in a passage about idolatry because this passage challenges us about where our true loyalty lies. You know, do you count the glory of God as more important and more weighty than the lives of 3,000 undeserving people? Are you more offended by the offense to God in verses one to six or by the loss of life in verses 26 to 29? Because if you're more offended by what happens in the killing of the 3,000, you have made God in your image. And if we think that we're more compassionate than God or our ethics are better than God's, we may as well bow down to the cow right now because we have not yet come to value the weight of God's glory and the preciousness of him being our God and us being his people. We need a better high priest than Aaron. God's people need leaders who will steer people away from idolatry rather than steer them into it. God's people need leaders who prefer the glory of God to their own convenience or reputation. We need a better high priest than Aaron. Secondly, we need a more effective mediator than Moses. The key to this chapter is not the calf, but the conversation between the Lord and Moses on the mountain. Because while Aaron is fashioning a calf down below, God is fashioning a mediator up on the mountain. 
In verse seven, God tells Moses what's been happening down below in camp. He's just spent seven chapters outlining the beauty of the tabernacle. And this is God's plans to dwell with his people. And he's laying out the plans. And now in verse seven, we can, we can hear God's grief when he says to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. <laughs> Until now, it's always been my people. Let my people go, says the Lord. Now it's your people, Moses. Why the change? These, this change, slight change in wording there, is a little window into the, on the grief that the Lord is experiencing at being rejected by his people when they said, make us gods who'll go up before us. There's grief. And God says, verse eight, they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. They have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it, they've sacrificed to it, and they've said, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And then he says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, they are a stiff-necked people. That's a great description, isn't it? They are not humble, they don't bow their head, they don't bow their head in worship. They are defiant, and they will not let God tell them what to do. They're a stiff-necked people. And then the Lord says, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I'll make you into a great nation. This is very serious. It looks like the whole plan of Exodus has just gone up in smoke, doesn't it? But we need to ask the question, why does the Lord disown his people to Moses? And why does he invite why does he invite Moses in into the conversation? Think about this, He's, because if God had just decided to destroy Israel, it would have happened. Bam, they're out. But he has a conversation with Moses about this, and perhaps the door is open for the Lord to consider another option. And God opens his heart to Moses, and in doing so, he invites Moses in to become a mediator in that process. Now I say this because God tells Moses, now leave me alone. And then we note Moses doesn't leave God alone. Why doesn't Moses leave God alone? Because when the Lord says, now leave me alone, he's not some petulant little child at this point. He's speaking words of hurt, but there is an opening for Moses to speak into this and to sway the decision, and the Lord is inviting Moses in. To this. So now Israel's fate depends on Moses' decision to engage with God at this moment or not. You know, you might have a friend who's really, really hurt and they say, just leave me alone. And actually, it's an invitation to go and speak to them in the right way, in the right tone, to draw them out, to make them think a different way. And I suspect the Lord is allowing Moses to do this because he's fashioning Moses as a mediator. Well, Moses does choose to engage with God. Thankfully, verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? He reminds God whose people they really are. They're not my people, they're your people, God. Your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. 
And now he does this great bit of intercession. And we've, if we were to summarize the, the sort of arguments and strategy that Moses brings to bear, you can with three R's. First of all, relationship. They are your people, Lord. I know it feels like they're not, but they still are. You are still married to them. They are still your wife. You bought them up out of Egypt, not that calf. Reputation, second R. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? I mean, the whole point of you bringing your people out of Egypt was so that the nations round about would know that you alone are the Lord. Your reputation is important to you. So turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring up disaster upon your people. This is amazing. The word relent is repent. He's, he's calling upon the Lord to repent, not repent of sin, the Lord hasn't sinned, but to repent, to change his mind, to change his decision, to do a U-turn. Relationship, reputation, and now the third R, remember. He said, remember, verse 13, what you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom you swore by yourself. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Remember that. This is powerful intercession, isn't it? Verse 14, you see the result? This is massive. At this the Lord relented, he repented of what he was planning. He did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Because of Moses' prayer, isn't that astounding? He averts judgment day for his people. He's an effective mediator in his first intercession, right? But then... He goes down the mountain and he sees that the Israelites, they've broken the covenant and so Moses breaks the covenant tablets. He hasn't broken the covenant, the people have done, this is just entirely fitting. And now Moses himself feels the burning anger that the Lord had felt up on the mountain because now Moses is seeing what the Lord had seen and Moses feels this anger and he takes the idol and he grinds it to powder and he puts it with water and he makes the people drink it and he turns the idol into excrement, which is exactly what it is. That's what it's worth. And then by the time the killing is over, of course, the behavior has stopped. But while Moses has gained a reprieve of judgment, atonement still needs to be made and there is need for more intercession. So he says in verse 30, I've got to go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses goes up to the Lord and he says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of God. And then he prays the most powerful prayer he can bring to bear. He says, but now please forgive their sins. If not, blot me out of the book you've written. Now that is the most powerful prayer because there's nothing more you can say that you can give up, right, at that point. He offers his own life in exchange for the lives of the people. But of course he can't. He can't atone for, the pe for their sins for two very good reasons. Number one, he's a sinner himself. And number two, he's only one human being. And that's why even after Moses prays the greatest prayer that he can bring to bear, he is not really effective. At the end of the chapter, the guilt of what Israel has done still hangs over them. Punishment is still pending. It begins with a plague which breaks out on them because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. What this is saying is that even though Moses was great, we need a more effective mediator than Moses.
What's needed is someone who is without sin. Someone who's lived a life and faced all our temptations without ever disobeying the commandments. Someone who all their life chooses the glory of God aside from doing their own thing. And we need a person who's also divine, whose life is eternal, so that when they substitute in for us, when his name gets blotted out of God's book for a time, the extent of that substitution can cover every man or woman or child who comes to him. That's what we need. We need a more effective mediator than Moses. We need Jesus Christ to be our mediator because only he can provide atonement once and for all for sin, which he did. And we've just celebrated that at Easter. But that's not all a high priest does. Even more than that, of course, what's clear from this incident is what we also need is a change of heart because it was the corruption of our heart which gave rise to the problem in the first place. That's why God the Father promises his spirit who will remove our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh and warm us up to the things of God. And that's why now for us the warning against idolatry which comes in the New Testament is in fact even more serious than it was for the Israelites. If anything, things get ramped up In 1 Corinthians, Paul says these things in the Old Testament, they happened to the Israelites as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. He says no temptation has has overtaken you except what's common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And then he says, therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. Because if we who have the spirit, if we remain stiff-necked, persistently stubborn and not remorseful or not repentant before God, that is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and there is no forgiveness for that. And that means, therefore, that in addition to atonement and a change of heart, we actually need a third thing, and that's help in our time of temptation. And that's why we need Jesus Christ to be our mediator. Um, He's not dead, he's alive, and he's working. He is interceding for us. He has atoned for our sins. He has poured out his spirit. He is through his spirit changing our hearts. But the final great thing about him being high priest is that he is our help. When it says in 1 Corinthians that God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear and when you are tempted he will provide a way out, Jesus Christ is the way out. Why do I say that? I wanna finish with these words from Hebrews chapter four. And in fact, I think I want us to say them together. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's the last thing Jesus does. And he does it for us constantly. At your time of trial, you call out to him and say, I don't know if I'm strong enough. And he will help you to resist temptation if you call out to him in the time of need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a sobering, sobering chapter. We need a better high priest than Aaron. We need a more effective high priest than Moses. But we praise you that you have given us Jesus Christ, our mediator, who provides atonement and who changes our hearts through his spirit and word and who also helps us in our time of trial. Thank you for him. Help us to call on him. In Jesus' name, amen.